You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Okay, we are back again. Yes. So, welcome to the podcast, everybody, where we dissect weird medieval stories and teach you how to make D&D, TTRPG, quests, adventures, horrifying enemies to TPK your party, etc, etc. I don't know, I feel like saying dissect implies that these stories are dead, but stories, I think, are perpetually alive, so really we're vivisecting. We're vivisecting these. I think that... Which also sounds much more gruesome. <laughs> yes, but it's true to the spirit of the stories that we dismember as well i think we can say we dismember them but we do a bit anyway if you are not already on our social media or following in our discord chat we have a lot of great discourse in the discord so please feel free to join we always love hearing your wonderful ideas we often ask for ideas on the discord so please jump in make your voice heard contribute to this strange I don't even know. Strange podcast, strange whatever this is that we do in our spare time. It's definitely a podcast. It is It is definitely a podcast, yes. Anyway, yes, do come be a part of the Discord. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so via our Patreon. But anyway, all of that said and that out of the way, we will return this week to Aix Saga. Yes. Yes. Which I am literally just now realizing that I got so excited reading an article for this week's episode that I forgot to do a summary of what happened last time. So I will, I will do that on the fly. So essentially, we covered Aik's beginning. So we finished off with Thorwolf and Skalagrim, who are Aik's father and uncle, respectively. And of course, with these sagas, we have to go through their entire family tree and blah, 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 blah. And so now at this point, Fedulf, which is Aeg's grandfather and his father are dead. Well, uncle is dead. Thorolf's dead. And his brother, the other Thorolf, is still alive. So we sort of went through his conquests where he kills several innocent people, other boys, and then his dad kills, like, his childhood nanny, yeah. things like that. Kind of, kind it's, of it's gruesome. It's really a, a, just a terrible family. It, they're really bad. It's really rough. All right. So we ended off on chapter 42, so we will be picking up on 43. There's still continually a feud with King Harold and now King Eric of Norway. All right. Yes. 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 We had gotten to that. Wait, I thought King Eric was like King Harold's son. Yes. But they're also feuding. No, 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 not those two. Like, Scott, Scott Ligram's family and Aeg's family is feuding with Yes, they, they have the a kingship. feud with the Norwegian royal family. Yes. <laughs> that makes more sense. I don't know why I interpreted, the, interpreted it the other way. No worries. We'll get there eventually. It's very difficult, especially because we're tracking so many family lines. Like, Game of Thrones is comparatively simple to this. And if you're wondering why I have previously made comparisons to Game of Thrones, and I do so quite perpetually throughout this series, it's because I feel personally that the sort of 
grim dark attitude and all the main characters dying and sort of the length of time in which the books cover is a fairly similar analog for this saga in particular and it's also a cultural touch point that I can use as a reference. I think the saga is better but I'm also a pretentious academic so take that as you will. I mean I can't comment either way since A Song of Ice and Fire isn't finished and until it's finished I can't have an opinion on whether it's good. So far it's good but it could become bad. That's fair. But right now it's neither. Until George R. R. Martin finally finishes. I think you're both going to die before that. Probably. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it. <laughs> All right. Anyway, da -da -da, we shall pick back up with chapter 42. I think we finished chapter 42. Basically, all that happens in chapter 42 is Thorolf gets married to a woman called Asgard. I don't remember. That's all that happens. But if that's all that that's happens. All, that's all that happens. That's, that's what happens. And now we've done chapter 42. Woohoo! This is Bjorn's daughter, Asgard. Anyway. This is why I wanted you to check this out. I have a notebook. It's a dedicated notebook for this show. Because yes. I have noticed that you're always taking notes and it's very helpful. And I should probably do it too because I keep forgetting stuff. It is very helpful. Note taking is, I think, in my blood. The notes are not always helpful. Sometimes they're just singular words that I look back on later and I'm like, bread boy. I don't know what that means. It's the world's greatest hero. I, I suppose. We cannot get by without bread. All right. But it's also where I can put like research and stuff, but yes. I have it here. Look it up. So, jumping in. Chapter 43 of Alvir and Aeak. There was a man called Alvir, a housecarl of Thorir's, who was a manager and bailiff over his estate. He had the getting in of debts and was the treasurer. So he deals with credit, debt, holds all the money in the estate. He's an older man, but was still quite strong and hale, and so it happened that Alvir had to leave home to get some of the rents of Thorir's that had stood over from the spring. He had a rowboat and went with twelve of Thorir's housecarls, and soon Aik began to recover from his bed, and he thought it was dull work at home when everybody else had gone away. So he spoke with Alvir and said, hey, I want to come with you. And Alvir's like, sure, why not? We can add one more comrade to the bundle. So Aeg prepares to go. And of course, he brings all of his weapons with him. Is that the collective noun for comrades? A bundle of comrades? It is now. I like it. <laughs> I mean, I would have suggested a proletariat of comrades. I mean, I like that too. But this one sounds like you're getting a good deal at Costco. That's true. It does. <laughs> comrades go. No, that doesn't work at all. I'll let, I'll let the listeners come up with that one. It, it assonates. It should work, it should but work, it doesn't. But it doesn't quite work. All right. So they went their way, but they had the wind blowing hard against them, and it was very troublesome. But they pursued the journey vigorously, and their progress was such that they came to Atla Isle. Bard saw that they were very wet from this journey, and he led them to a fire hall that stood apart from the other buildings. They're very wet, as in, like, it's storming, it's gross. They were just out on the water, and they got in, and they're all soaking wet and gross. Yes, they're, they're wet after a boat ride. So wait, what other explanation were you imagining that you felt you had to clarify that? In that situation, none. I just wanted to make it very clear. <laughs> because at first I was like, why would they be wet? It didn't talk about a storm. It just talked about a gale. But, you know. I mean, they're on the sea. They're on the sea. It makes sense. If you've ever been in one of those like dinghies, there's no way that you can go from sailboat to dinghy to shore without getting wet. There's just no way. Now that I think of it, I, I'm pretty sure every time they actually describe landing 
any of the ships in the like sagas, it involves people like wading through the water to drag it all the way up on shore. Essentially, yeah. Like they they don't tie it to a dock or anything. Yeah, they just drag it up onto the shore and lay it sort of on its side. I mean, sometimes yeah, so yeah, they do always... have harbors and stuff, but it's eh, you never know. So anyway. Bard brings them in, and he has a fire made for them, and they dry themselves off and put on their clothes again, and Bard came back in. And he says, now we'll set a table, and I know you will be glad to sleep, for you are, and this is the phrase, you are weary from your wedding. (laughs) That's why I clarified it, okay? Yeah, that makes sense now. That makes sense now. It's a terrible translation. And so Alvir liked that well. And so they were given food, bread and butter, and large bowls of curds set forth. Bard said, I'm sorry that there is no ale in this house that I might receive you as I would. You will have to make out with what there is. And Alvir and his folk were very thirsty and they drank up the curds. And then Bard had oat drink brought in, which I think is like, I don't know whether they're drinking oat milk or some kind of like watered down oat beer or something. But they're drinking, I'm going to go with oat milk, and they drink that. And again, Bard says, I would like if I gave you something better, but I don't have it. And they lay down in the straw of this, like, booth and went to sleep. Now, the reason that I'm going to emphasize this is, listeners, if you remember back to our little article episode, we talked about the laws of hospitality. Yeah, and ale is entitled to butter. Yes, ale is very entitled to butter. So for those who missed that episode or who need a refresher, there are laws of hospitality, not only in Ireland, also, you know, Norway, England, probably all the way down into the continent, certainly Iceland, etc, etc. But there's a culture of if you are a guest in someone's home, and if they are of a certain rank or whatever rank they are, you provide them with something. Yeah, I feel like that's extremely widespread. Like, it's it's definitely not just Western Europe. I feel like it's not even just Europe. Like, that's, I feel like that's, that's you can find that all over the place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So depending on what rank you are, you are deserving of a certain type of food. The specificity might be a regional thing. Right. But... Bard here saying, I don't have what is necessary for your rank. I'm sorry. Here's what I do have. So that is the context here. Otherwise, it feels very, very weird that he's making such a big deal out of, out of what he has. Now, King Eric and Queen Gunhild came that evening to Atla, and Bard had prepared there a banquet for the king. And there was also to be a sacrifice of guardian spirits, or two guardian spirits, not of spirits. <laughs> that would have been very strange. I'm writing that down. <laughs> Or sacrificing spirits for the village today. Anyway, sumptuous was that banquet, and great drinking was in the hall. Where is Bard? asked the king. I don't see him. Someone said, oh, Bard is outside supplying his guests. And who are these guests? asked the king. That he deems more duty than I, the king. Good question to be asking. And so... The king calls Thorir back and asks him to get these other guests. He's like, bring them in! Why are, why are there multiple guests in different places? Just bring bring them all yeah. into the banquet. Now, Is this a sitcom? Are we on Blackadder? Like, yeah. <laughs> why are you having two parties in two different rooms? Exactly. Bring them all in. One building. Whereupon they came. The king received Alvir well and bade him sit in the high seat facing himself and his comrades around him. They did so, and Aik was sitting next to Alvir. Ale was then served to them to drink. Many toasts went around, 
and the horn should be That's drunk. A-L-A-L-E, not E-G-I-L. Yes. Beer was <laughs> stout, if you will, was passed around to drink. But as Well, neither, because there are no hops. Well, okay. I don't know the intricacies of these things. This is this is your area of expertise. <laughs> but as the evening wore on, many of Alvir's companions became helpless. That is to say, they got drunk. Some remained in the room, though sick, and some went out of doors. Bard busily plied them all with drink. Then Aeg took the horn which Bard had offered to Alvir and drank it. Bard said that Aeg was very thirsty and brought him the horn again. Aeg took the horn and recited a stave. Ah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start skipping some of these because they're a bit wordy and they're not they're not as true to the original. But basically, he's saying. You're a greedy bastard. You didn't give us what was our due. F*** you. So, Bard bade him drink and stop that jeering. Aeg drained the cup, and Alvir did as well. And then Bard went up to the queen and told her that there was a man here who put shame on them. For however so much he drank, he said he was still thirsty. The queen and Bard then mixed the drink with poison and bear it in. Bard consecrated the cup and then gave it to the ale maid. Now, what I think he's doing here is he's, like, cursing it. So he put poison in it, and he's cursing it as well. So, essentially, Aeg went to the queen and said, Hey, screw this guy. I'm, like, he's saying that I'm not having my fill. I'm, I deserve my fill. What's up with that? And the queen's like, I hate this kid. What a punk. I'm a witch queen. Let's get rid of him. This is one of the things I really love about this saga is that Ale is, like, the best way to describe his occupation is he is a warrior poet. That is his thing. But that evokes, like, a very refined image. But he is the opposite of that. Exactly. No, he's absolutely wild, completely unhinged. And so the Ale Maid brings this horn over to Aeic, and Aeic grabs it, draws his knife, and pricks the palm of his hand. He takes the horn, scratches runes in it, and smears the blood on his hand, and then sings, Write we runes around the horn, redden all the spell with blood. Wise words I choose for the cup, wrought from branching horn of beast. Drink we then, drink we will. Draught that the cheerful bearer brings. Learn that health abides in ale, holy ale that Bard has blessed. Man, good thing he did that this time. Yeah, right? So upon doing this, the horn bursts apart in his hand. And obviously the ale spills all over. So what's just happened here? Well, I think it's up to the reader's interpretation whether this is a protective spell or if it's just explosive runes. That's fair. We don't we don't actually know because we don't know what the runes say. Yeah. But we do know that Aeic is, one, aware of the magic around this cup and knows that it's either been, like, magically cursed and or poisoned. And then he himself knows how to beat that curse back with his own magic. Which I find very interesting because that is not shown elsewhere in this saga that he knows that information. Up till now, he's just really, really good with his words. But we also see that he has a certain amount of cunning that we didn't otherwise know before. Like, yeah, he mouths off, but he also has a wisdom behind that attitude. So this horn bursts. And after this, Alivir now starts to get faint, like he's passing out. And 
So Aik stands up, takes Alvira by the hand, and leads him to the door. Aik shifts his cloak to his left side, and under the mantle held his sword. So he's doing the kind of, like, sneaky thing, where he's... You know in the, uh, like, you know, westerns, the guy, like, scoots his poncho out of the way and puts his hand on his gun? He's basically doing that, but with his sword. Thus giving us further evidence for my general theory that westerns and Icelandic sagas are basically the same genre, just in different times and places. Pretty much. So he, they get to the door, and Bard then comes after them with, like, another another horn of ale. He's like, drink a farewell cup, because that didn't work the first time. I don't know why he thinks it's going to work this time. But Aeok stands in the door. He takes it, chugs the thing, and then speaks another verse to, not curse, but essentially insult Bard again. And he chucks the horn down into the doorway, grabs his sword and draws it, and stabs Bard straight through the middle so that the point goes out his back. Bard falls down, blood like gushing out of him, and then Alvir falls too, vomiting, and then Aeok dashes out of the room. So, just to sort of recap that moment for you, Bard comes with a horn of ale and says like, oh, drink a farewell cup, buddy. Aeok takes it like a shot, smashes it down onto the ground, yanks out his sword, drops his best friend, stabs the other guy through the gut. That guy, Bard, falls down dead, and then Alvir vomits on him, and Aeok runs. I just love that scene. Yes. It's wild. And so then the king comes and bids them bring light, and they saw what had happened, and they see that Elvir is laying there senseless, Bard is slain, the floor is covered in blood, and then the king asked, Where was that big man who drunk the most that evening? Seek him and bring him to me, said the king. Search was made for him around the premises, but he was nowhere to be found. But when they came to the detached fire hall, there lay Alvir's comrades. The king's men asked if Aeg had come there at all, and they said that he ran in, taken his weapons, and ran back out. The king bade his men go with all speed and seize every ship and boat on the island. But in the morning, when it is light, he said, we must search the island and slay the man. So essentially... The king wants to cut off his escape by bringing all the boats in. Nobody can leave the island. we got to find this bastard. So, meanwhile, Aeg went in the night and sought the places where the boats were. I don't know why our author doesn't just say he goes to the boats. But anyway, whenever he tried to come to the shore, men were always there before him. And so he ran around the entire night and never found a boat. But when the day dawned, he stood on a certain strand, and he saw another island between him and a very wide sound. That is to say, a sound as in of the body of water. So he took his helmet, sword, and spear, breaks off the spear shaft, and casts it out into the sea, but wraps the weapons around it, his cloak, and makes a bundle that he like carries on his back or over his head, and swims across to this little island. This is Sheppy. This is the island Sheppy. And it's an island of no great size, covered in brushwood, and there were cattle on it, belonging to Atla. By the time it was daylight, King Eric had Atla Isle well searched. It took time, because the island was very large, and Eric, of course, was not found. And Adel was very small. <laughs> He's actually not. He's 
comparatively an incredibly large man, but he's a very small person on this big island. Yeah, he's smaller than an island. Yes, indeed. And so the king has his men row around to try and find them. And they were to look for Aik and also bring back cattle for slaughter for dinner. And Aik saw the boat coming to the island, so he lay himself down and hid in the brushwood. They left three men behind with the boat, but nine went up and separated into three, so three groups of three, I guess four groups of three in total, to go and search. But when a rise in the ground was between them and the boat, Aik stood up, having before got his weapons ready, and made straight across for the sea and then along the shore. Those who guarded the boat were not aware of it until Aik was upon them. He at once smote one with a death blow. Another took to his heels, and he had to leap up the bank. Aik followed him with a blow, cutting off his foot. The third man leapt out into the boat and pushed off with the pole, and Aik drew the boat to him with the rope and leapt out into it. Few blows were exchanged, and Aik pushes this guy overboard. He then took to the oars and rowed away. And then these guys are stranded on the island. I just love the image of this guy frantically trying to row away, but Aik has the rope and is pulling this guy back to land. Hmm. Like, that's so bad. It is. And it's a good illustration of Ale's strength. True. But the men who were in Sheppy were there for many nights and killed cattle for food to survive. And they burned all the bones and stuff. And when people saw the fire, they eventually come got those guys. Which I just love that they included in this saga. They're like, don't worry. The other guys survived. The three, you know, eh, but the other nine, they were okay. I feel like it's a little strange that no one realized they were missing. Like, it's not a big community. Someone's going to be like, hey, what happened to those 12 guys? Last I heard, they were going to get food off the off Sheppy. And they just never returned. Yeah. Has anyone checked on them? Ah, that's probably not important. I think this next line has something to do with that. By that time, the king had gone away to a different banquet. Oh, so like <laughs> they, they left. They left. They're like, eh, whatever. But of Alvir, there is this to be told, that he reached home before Aik, and Thorolf and Thorir had come home even before that. And Alvir told them what had happened, the slaying of Bard and the rest. But of Aik's goings, he knew nothing. Thorolf was much grieved to hear this, and... He thought that Aik would never return. But the next morning, Aik came home. And so he asks what happened. He recites another poem. And then Thorir said, It will be common verdict that Bard got his just desserts in being slain. Yet hath Aik wrought too much after the way of his kin. That is to say, he's acting too much like his father and grandfather who made the king very, very angry. But I will atone for you. So Thorir went to find the king, but Aaron Bjorn, who's Thorir's friend, remained at home. When Thorir came to the king, he offered terms for Aik, his own bail, while the king should doom the fine. King Eric was very wroth, and it was hard to come by speech with him, which is, again, a motif of the sagas that when you're very angry, you get all dark and sour, and your face goes red, and you just don't talk. Yes. Yes. They're holding their breath because they're so angry. I suppose that seems like the only physiological... I mean, that or it's a literary motif. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Eric said that what his father had said all those years ago would prove true. That family would never be trustworthy. He bade Thorir arrange it thus. I will accept some atonement, and Aeg shall not be harbored in my realm. But for your intercession, I will take a money fine for this man. So essentially, all right, fine, I'll... 
I'll let him live. I'll take some money, some payment for what has been done, but I don't want to see Aeok in my realm ever. So Thorolf and Aeok stayed that winter with Thorir, and in spring they got ready a large warship and gathered men, and in summer they went eastern and harried. They went Viking. They plundered and slew, but the people fled until there was at last no resistance. But as the day wore on, Thorolf had the blast sounded to recall his men down to the shore. Then each turned back from where they were in the wood. But when Thorolf mustered his force, Eik and his company had not come back, and the darkness of night was closing in, so they decided not to go searching for him that night. Now Eik and his twelve men, I don't know why it's always twelve. It's the same reason why it's always three and seven in fairy tales. It's yeah. always twelve in sagas. It's always twelve in sagas. Who knows? Also worth noting in connection with this, Old Norse is one of those languages that does contain vestiges, maybe is the best word, of a base 12 number system. Uh, anyway, Aik and his men had gone through a wood and then they saw a wide plain. In this plain stood a house. So they made for this house, and when they came there, they ran into it, but they didn't see anyone there. So they took all the loose chattels oh. that they came upon. Oh, they... They ran inside it, like through the door. Yes. I was, I was picturing something else, and I was confused. I'm like, like the, excuse me, they did what? The Kool-Aid man? Like, he's busting through the wall? <laughs> I was just picturing them, like, running and just smacking into the wall and falling down. Like, oh, he ran into it. No, they go inside the house, and they take all the loose chattels that they came upon. So they're, like, grabbing all the slaves that are around. Oh, I... I think chattel can also just mean wealth in this context. Oh, that makes much more sense. I wasn't sure, because I was like, are they taking the livestock or the well, like wealth or the oh. slaves? Because I've heard it in all three contexts. So I'm going to go with wealth just yeah, for the I'm sake a, of... I'll check the OAD just to make sure. I'm loading the uh, online version now. It makes sense, because the next line is, there were many rooms, so this took them a long time. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like running around gathering all this shit. Because why not? They're running around at night through a wood. Yes. Okay, according to this, wealth in general is the original definition. It became movable wealth, mm -hmm. like not land or st and stuff later. So yes, wealth. So they're looting this place. But when they came out and away from the house, an armed force was there between them and the wood, and they were attacked. High palings ran from the house to the wood, and these A told them to keep close to, that they might not be attacked from all sides. They did so, and A went first, and then the rest. So essentially, he's saying, like, stay near the fence so they can't flank us and get around us. Ah. The Corlanders, which is apparently this attacking force, which this term comes out of nowhere. Is it spelled like the bowl full of holes you use in the kitchen? Like a colander? Yeah, that's isn't that what you said? No, Coorlander, C O U R L A N D E R. Okay. I heard Colanders and I was confused. <laughs> the the Coorlanders, the Corland the Corlanders, the Colanders. Okay, so so these are the people of the cheap beer. Yes, essentially. Anyway, they attacked them. Uh, not coming in close quarters because they fought with spears and javelins. Aeok's party was going forward along the fence, but did not find out until too late that another line of palings ran on the other side, the space between narrowing until there was a bend, and all progress was barred. So they essentially, like, it's one of those alley chase scenes where they twist and turn and twist and turn until they realize it's a dead end. They can't go anywhere. 
And, he, and they've just boxed themselves Precisely. In. The Corlanders pursued them into this pen, and some of them set on them from without, thrusting javelins and swords through the palings while others cast clothes on their weapons. So, like... What? I think this means that they're, um... They're, like, taking what they have, whether it's clothes or coats or whatever, and shoving them onto that side of the paling. So the, like, trying to stuff the holes so they can't get through. Mm -hmm. The javelins won't get through. Okay. Like, shoving fabric between the holes of the fence. Ick's party were wounded and taken and bound and brought back to the house. The owner of that farm was a powerful and wealthy man. He had a son grown up. Now they debated what they should do with their prisoners. The good man, which this is just like the owner of the house that just likes to use this old-fashioned term, the goodman. This it's not saying like a good man. Right. This is like um the crucible. Where all all the men are good men and all the women are goody. Oh. Hmm. I don't know if I like that. It's said in Puritan times. I I've still never heard that. Really? Have you not read The Crucible? No! How did you get out of high school without reading The Crucible? Because I instead read King Lear four f***ing times. Yeah, you just mentioned that in the episode I was editing before we started recording this. I'm so bitter. (laughs) (laughs) I never got to read any of the good ones. Yeah, The the Crucible is a, it's a... It's also a play, but it's from the 20th century, and it's a statement about McCarthyism set during the Salem Witch Trials. See, I read... Scarlet Letter instead, which is, I think, far more boring. It's got some interesting sentence structure, but that's about all I can say about it. <laughs> it's really complicated to read. Would not recommend for high school students. Yeah, no, it was it was intense. That's a, that's a higher reading level than people think it is. Yeah, no, it really is. Anyway, the Goodman thought that they should kill them all one after the other. So, like, not all at the same time, like, in a line. I like that they're being specific. Yes, very specific. The sun said that the darkness of night was now closing in, and no sport was thus gotten by their torture. He said that it should wait until the morning. I'm sorry, so he's like, well, look, it's getting dark. Won't it be more fun to kill them when we can see it better? That's his argument. Wow. Yep. There's something wrong with this guy. Oh, yeah, the entire family. It's the... I don't remember who it is in Game of Thrones. It's the, the Red Wedding people. Oh, I can't remember their name. Starts with an R. Ramsey. No, that's that's a different family. the The red wedding people are the Foys. I don't yeah, know. This is gonna bug me. But the the what's his name? Bolton Ramsey or something yeah. is also a psycho. Yeah, so it's one of those. Frey. Frey. Okay. The Freys. That makes sense. So anyway, pick your psycho. And so they were thrust into a room and strongly bound. Egg was bound hand and foot to a post. Then the room was strongly locked, and the Corlanders went into the dining hall, ate, drank, and were merry. Now, this next part I really like because it can very easily be adapted either to a D&D game or to film in a movie. I think it's a really cool action sequence. So, Egg strained and worked the post till he loosed it up from the floor. Then the post fell, and Egg slipped himself off of it. So he's like getting the knots undone. And he loosed his hands with his teeth. He's like ripping apart this rope with his mouth. And when his hands were loose, he then took the bonds from his feet and he freed his comrades. And when they were all free, they searched for the likeliest place to get out. The room was made with walls of large wooden beams, but at one end there was a smooth planking. And at this they dashed and broke it through. 
Now, I don't know if this is when they are actually running at the wall and smacking it, but I I think they probably used the post and, like, smashed it down. Now, they came into another room, and this, too, had walls of wooden beams. Then they heard men's voices below their feet. Searching about, they found a trap door in the floor, which they opened. There under was a deep vault, and down in it they heard men's voices. Then Aik asked what men were there. He who answered named himself Aki. And Aik asks, would he like to come up? Aki answered that he would like it very much. <laughs> I just love how like polite this is. Then Aik and his comrades lowered into the vault the rope with which they had been bound and drew up three men. Aki said that these were his two sons and that they were Danes who had been made prisoners of war last summer. I'm sorry, is th- this, this is the same psycho family and they just have a bunch of Danes in their basement? Yes, they do, yes. <laughs> And they've been there since last summer? Yep. So they've been in this basement for a year. Wow. Mm-hmm. Again, very Game of Thrones. That's why I keep referencing it. Mm-hmm. So Aki then says, I was treated well here through the winter and had like the best care in all the property, but the lads and I were enslaved and had a hard lot. In spring, we made up our minds to run away, but were retaken, and then we were cast into this vault. And Aik responds by saying... I'll bet you know the layout of this house really well. How do we get out of here? Aki said that there was another plank partition. If you break up that part of the wall, then you will come into a corn store, like a place where corn is stored. And then you may leave from here as you will. How complicated can this house be? I mean, they did say it had many rooms. Yeah, I guess. So. Which also seems weird because like all of the like, layouts of Icelandic houses I've seen are pretty simple and are like all oriented around like one big common room with a bunch of offshoots. Yeah, essentially. It's sort of like a Roman house in that way. Where like there's one main room and then little rooms off of off of it. But I mean, this room also apparently has a trap door. So these bastards are sneaky anyway. They store people in their basement. Yeah, maybe they just also have unusual ideas about architecture. Who knows? And so they broke out through the granary and into the night. Then Aik's comrades said that they should hasten to the wood. Now, of all the things that you would do in this situation, escape is like the number one priority, right? Yeah, it's like, I mean, assuming I'm a Viking, Mm -hmm. I feel like priority one is make sure we can escape. Mm -hmm. Priority two is maybe burn the place on our way out. And then, like, if I'm feeling really ambitious, priority three is, like, can we maybe grab some, some like, coins before we go? I like how you're thinking about this, because you are thinking just like Aik. Oh, that's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aik said to Aki, if you know the house here, you can show us the way to some plunder. Of course he does. Aki says, of course he there's does. no lack of, of riches here. There's a large loft upstairs where the goodman sleeps. There's weapons all over that place. So they go out into the loft, or they plan to go out into the loft. When they came to the staircase, they saw that the loft was open. A light was inside, and servants, who were making the beds, were there. Aik bade some people to stay outside and watch that no one came out. Aik ran into the loft, seized some weapons, of which there were no lack. He slew all of the men that were in there, and they armed themselves fully. the servant? Yes! Why? Because he's a murder hobo. What do you expect from this man? I was going to say class solidarity, but he's like... He's a landlord. Yeah, fair. He's a landlord So I guess he is exercising, exercising his class solidarity. Yeah. 
Anyway, they armed themselves. Aki then went to a trapdoor in the floor, a different trapdoor, this is a loft trapdoor apparently, and opened it, telling them that they should go down into the storeroom below. They got a light and went in, and this was the Goodman's treasury. And there were many costly things in there. And so each of them took a load and carried it out. Aik took under his arm a large mead cask that he found and carried it out. Is it full? Yes. Okay, that's the important it's part. It's very heavy. Oh yeah, that's actually quite a feat of strength, yeah. I think. Yep, that's, I think that's why they're mentioning it, is because like it's a massive like barrel of mead. Oh, I thought they were just emphasizing like that Ale likes his alcohol. <laughs> well, okay, small spoiler, we'll get to this in like a page. It's full of silver. Oh! So it's even heavier than you would think. Alright, wow. So I think they're emphasizing his strength here, and also like that's a hell of a lot of money. Especially for a society that doesn't actually use cash all that much. Yeah. They all like accumulating cash, but when they're just trading amongst themselves, it's almost always like favors and barter and like the regular ways that small communities just make things work. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, last summer, Bob helped me out. This summer, I'll help Bob out and like no money needs to change hands. Yeah, you fix my door. I'll give you my, I'll give you some eggs. Yeah. Or like whatever. Just everyone owes each other favors. Yeah. The only time it really comes up that you need to have cash on hand is if you're either buying stuff overseas from people you'll never see again and therefore can't just owe a favor or if you killed someone and you have to legally pay compensation yep pretty much or if you're just like hoarding stuff mostly gold is hoarded future mac here something past mac should have mentioned is that something we see a lot in the internal icelandic economy in the saga age is that they're more likely to talk about value in terms of the equivalent in homespun cloth than the equivalent in coins. That's essentially. Anyway, so they all grab armfuls of loot and start heading out back to the wood. And when they get to the wood, Aegis stops. And then he says, now, what do you think he's going to say here? He's going to say a poem. Actually, he's not. This is one of the instances when you expect him to. But he doesn't. So we've already got the escape done. We've already done the looting. Is he going to burn the house? Because that was my other guess. He's going to burn the house. He stops (laughs) and he says, Our going about this is all wrong and not at all warlike. We've stolen the Goodman's property without his knowing. That will never be a shame of ours. We should go back to the house and let him know what's happened. Everyone else spoke against this, saying that they would make for the ship. I feel like the way he's framing this is entertaining, <laughs> but it also makes it sound like a worse idea. Right? Like, if you were just like, these people were assholes, let's set their house on fire before they go. I feel like more people would be on board, but the fact that he's framing this as like, it's a matter of honor that we shouldn't just steal from them, we should fight them for it. Right. Obviously, everyone's like, no. No, we're just going to take it and run. So anyway, everyone else decides to go back to the boat. But Egg sets down his mead cask and runs off back to the house, and he sees that serving lads were coming out of the kitchen with dishes and burying them into the dining hall. And so he goes into the kitchen and sees that there are great beams like over through the whole house that were like custom made, and he sets fire to the beam end and burns it lengthwise. And then he seizes one of these beams, carries it to the dining hall, and thrusts the burning end under the eaves of the house so that the birch bark of the roof catches flame. And then some tinder was by the side, and so Aeg 
piles it all up. <laughs> oh, I was badly miming swiping on a phone. <laughs> oh, Tinder. Yes, that makes sense. Well, I used the word Tinder as opposed to what they had in the text, which is f- wood. Yeah, I guess that hadn't become a slur at the time this translation was made. Nope. No. It's also one G. So it's like technically a different thing, but still. I'm probably going to bleep that out anyway. That's fr- that's fair. So anyway, Ayak takes this tinder, piles it in front of the door, and it also catches fire. But those who sat drinking did not find out about the flame until it burst in on the roof. Then they rushed to the door, but there was no easy way out because all the wood had been pushed against it, and also Ayak is standing there keeping it shut. And he slew most who strove to pass out through the doorway or outside. So that's just unnecessary. <laughs> like, again, let the servants go. It's not their fault. I agree with you, but here we are. Well, he is upper class, so, like, we can't <laughs> expect him to think that poor people are, you know, human. Yeah. The Goodman tries to sneak out in the dark, but Aik finds him and kills him, as he did to many others. And so then Aik goes back into the wood, where he finds his comrades, and all together they went back to the ship, and Aik said he would have the mead cask as his own special prize, and it proved to be full of silver. Thorolf and his men were overjoyed when Aya came back. <laughs> they put out from land as soon as the day dawned, and they sailed the summer and went to Denmark, where they lay in wait for merchant ships. So they're just full-on pirates. Yeah. Okay, so did everyone just keep what they carried? Because in Probably. that case, it's not weird that Ale is like, the cask is mine, but... The way, the fact that he specified it makes me think that maybe the other stuff was divided up equally and he's just being a d- I don't actually know it's not specified, but he probably like if everyone took it for himself. kept what they carried, why would he feel the need to say it? I think because he thinks he won a special honor by going back in the first place. Fair. So, yeah, you know. I mean, he didn't. No, but. Like, that was a dumb choice. It was a, he it shouldn't was a get dumb more choice. stuff for it. Okay. So now we are on to chapter 48. Thorolf stood northwards with his forced past Holland, and we're doing a small time skip here. I skipped one chapter because it's not very interesting. It's just of the further harrying of Thorolf and Aik. They did more pirating. There's another poem. Alright, yeah, pirates. So now they're past Holland, and they put into harbor there, but they did not plunder there. A little way up in the country dwelt an earl named Arnfid. The Earl bade Thorolf to a banquet with him, and as many of his men as he would invite, and Thorolf promised to go. So they went with Aik and had thirty men in total with them. Then they came to the Earl and he received them well, and brought them into the dining hall. At once beer was brought in and given to them to drink, which now we understand is important because this is their due. Mm-hmm. But before the tables were removed, the Earl said that they should cast lots to drink together in pairs, man and woman, so far as numbers would allow, but the odd ones by themselves. This is actually not an unusual practice. It's mentioned, I think, in multiple sagas. It's like how you set up things at a feast. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, all the men are going to want to chat up the women, and everyone's going to get all fussy about who gets to sit next to who. <laughs> So, so we're going to cast lots. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to draw lots. You know what? So Bob gets gets to sit next to Jane, and like it's randomly chosen. It's all fair. And when we run out of women, the rest of the men just have to sit by themselves. Like, sorry, guys. Forever alone. It's a reasonable process to skip past the part where everyone fights over who sits where. Yeah, that's true. It's almost like assigned seating at a feast, which I kind of like. That's a fun idea. Yeah. Yeah, except it's randomized, so no one can claim bias. Exactly. Future Mac here. Past Mac may have overstated this just because he's familiar with this particular passage. 
Drinking together in pairs, usually a man and a woman, is in fact a custom referred to more than once in the sagas. It is called Dviminninger, which just means pair, basically. But as far as I know, this is the only time it's mentioned that lots are cast to determine who sits with whom. However, if you look at the text of Ale Saga, it does describe this as, as was the custom. So it's entirely possible that this was actually a common practice, and Ale Saga is just the one where it's specified. So yeah, net zero information for y'all there, you're welcome. So they cast lots into the skirt of a cloak, and the Earl drew them out. The Earl had a very beautiful daughter in the flower of youth, which is a phrase that I abhor. Yeah, it's, it sounds a little creepy. Yeah. And the lot decreed that Aeok should sit by her for the evening. And she was going about the floor, amusing herself, talking to different people. And so Aeok stood up and went to the place where she sits, and she sits down. And when everyone took their seats, the Earl's daughter went to her place, and she's like, Why are you in my seat? And then... Essentially, how this happens is she sings a poem about, why are you in my seat? He sings a poem back to her about, like, how he's a handsome warrior and he gets to sit where he wants. And they're flirting, essentially. And the two of them drink together. I feel like handsome is stretching the truth a bit. Yeah. Since it's been established that he's really not. I mean, correct. Basically, he says he's a good warrior. Sound sleepeth many a warrior who is slain in the city gate is part of his flirty poem. Oh, poor <laughs> I- I'm sure all the women love hearing about warriors slain in the city gate. That's what gets them going. You know, who knows? She liked it, apparently. Anyway, they went to the feast and they parted with the Earl in friendship. As autumn came on, Thorolf and his men sailed northward along the Norway coast until they reached the Firths and then went to Lord Thorir. He received them well, but Aaron Bjorn, his son, much better, we saw her earlier with Thorir, and he invited Aeok to stay there for the winter. Aeok agrees. And when Thorir heard of this, he said it was kind of hasty and says, I don't know about this because this is King Eric's land and he's not too happy about having Aeok here. But Aaron Bjorn says, like, ah, forget the king. It'll be fine. And so they're like, okay, cool, fine, whatever. Lord Thorir went that autumn to King Eric. The king received him exceedingly well. But when they began to talk together, Thorir begged the king not to take it amiss that he had Aeok with him. (laughs) Sorry, I've got this asshole. Yeah. He won't leave me alone. He just follows me. The king answered this well. He said that Thorir might get from him what he would, but it should not have been that any other man had harbored Aeok. So, like... If it were anybody else, I wouldn't allow it, but it's you and you're my favorite, so it's fine. But Gunhild did not take this shit. Nor should she. She really shouldn't. And so she warns her I mean, husband, uh, like, hey. It would be wildly out of character if she were just chill about exactly. it. Exactly. She is a witch queen. Yes. So yes, she warns her husband that this is one of the sons of Skaldgrim, and this is not going to go well, and they're going to smite you down. And this not gonna end well for you, buddy. And the king answered, You, Gunhilda, more than others, provoke me to savageness. Yet time was when you were on better terms with Thorolf than now. However, I will not take back my word about those brothers. Thorolf was well here before Aeok made him bad, she answered, but now I reckon there are no differences between them. So, this is foreshadowing some stuff that's gonna come back later. Yeah, what was that about well here before Ale made him bad? Like, can you can you translate that into 21st century? Yes. 
I liked having Thorolf here because he was a good person, but Aeok made him bad, and now I don't like it when they're here. Okay, so Aeok's a bad influence on Thorolf. Basically, yes. So now, as the sagas tend to do, we are going to abruptly switch perspectives a little bit. So, Avend and Alf were the names of the two brothers of Gunhilda. They were tall and strong and great traders. They were then made much by Eric and Gunhild. They were generally very liked and young, but still fully grown into manhood, basically through their great lords in the Kingdom of Norway. And that spring, there was going to be a great sacrifice to be held in the summer at Galar. Now, this next section is very, very interesting because it's one of the few times that we see any kind of pagan tradition actually practiced and done in the sagas. It may be entirely made up because by the time this is written down, no one had been pagan for hundreds of years, or at least not openly. Right. So take that as you will with a grain of salt, but it's interesting to note anyway. And I know Dr. Hughes is, like, very skeptical anytime the phrase pagan temple comes up in the sagas. Because he's like, they probably didn't have temples. They just did their rituals at home. <laughs> That's fair. I understand having a communal place of worship, though. Even if it's not a formal place. I think the idea is, like, there's not a lot of archaeological evidence for them. And these are pretty spread out communities. So, like, a central place of worship isn't as practical. That's true. They did have an all thing, though, where they all gathered. True. So, it, I don't know. I think it could go either way. But there's not a temple there. Or at least there's no evidence of a temple. Oh, I'm not saying there's a temple there. I'm just saying that people from all the regions of Iceland would come together in one place. So they did at least have one central gathering spot. True. I think his, like, theory is that when people are talking about pagan temples in Scandinavia, <laughs> they're mostly thinking of, like, the Greco-Roman oh, paganism yeah. and just assuming that all pagans are just... Have temples. You know, all pagans are pagans. Like, they all do the same That's shit. so boring. Well, they don't know any better because their ancestors spent two, three hundred years systematically erasing all information about this, so now they can't write about it realistically. That's fair. That reminds me, there's, like, a, a Tumblr post or something where... Someone's like, oh, if you if you're Irish and you don't actually know Irish, then you're like a shitty person and like you're more English than you are Irish and f you. And then the comment underneath that was like, uh, you do realize that it's the English's fault that the Irish don't know their language anymore, right? Like, right. That that's literally the entire problem. But you know, rip. Anyway, yes, there's going to be a sacrifice at Galar. Everybody comes together, and King Eric went. Then Gunhild spoke with her brothers and said, I think that you two should manage matters in this crowded gathering to slay one of the two sons of Scotlagrim, or better yet, both. They said that it should be done. Thorir made ready to go, and he called Aaron Bjorn with him and said, Now I will go to the sacrifice, but I don't want Aeok to go. I know Gunhild's craft and the vehemence of Aeok, that is to say, like, his testiness. And I know the power of the king. And it is no easy task to watch all three at once. Which I really like as a phrase. Yeah. That's just fun. Yeah, that is good. But Aeok will not let himself be hindered unless you also stay behind. So don't go. Aaron Bjorn told Aeok that he meant to stay home and says like, hey, why don't you stay with me? And Aeok's like, oh, okay, you'll be here, buddy. We're friends. And they were roommates. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw a Vine reference anywhere. 
So Thorvir and the rest went to the sacrifice, and a great multitude were there, and there was much drinking. Thorolf went with Thorvir wheresoever he went, and they were never apart day or night. Cool. Just bros being bros. Just bros being bros. I said the vine a little too early, didn't I? Shucks. Anyway, Avon told Gunhilda that he would get no chance at Thorolf, because, you know, his BFF is there all the time. I mean, to be fair, I do think this is a matter of, like, hey, be my bodyguard so I can't get killed. Probably. But, you know. So she says, <laughs> girl boss, queen, she says, well, you can at least slay some of his men so that this whole thing doesn't, like, fail entirely. Like, look, we're here. We might as well kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> Stop making excuses. Essentially. Now, as the evening wore on, there was unfair drinking. I have no idea what this means. Next followed the bandying of words and then insulting language. All right. My best guess on that, because the, the way I initially tried to interpret that was that they were somehow cheating. And I'm like, I don't think you can cheat at drinking unless you're playing drinking games and cheating at those. Would it be but different qualities of beer? Could be. That could be it. See, I was thinking like, okay, what if it's fair as in beautiful oh. and therefore unfair drinking is they're getting like ugly drunk. Ooh, I like that better. All right. So they're getting ugly drunk. Then they're like tossing about, they're like bantering with each other, but then the bantering goes sour and then there's just insults being thrown back and forth. Mm -hmm. So Avend jumps up, draws a sword and thrusts it at Thorvald, dealing him a wound that was his death. Whereupon he jumped up on either side of the king's men and Thorir's housecarls. But all the men were weaponless there because it was a sanctuary. Men went between them and parted them who were the most furious, and nothing more happened that evening. Avend had slain a man on holy ground. He was therefore made accursed and had to go abroad at once. The king offered a fine for the man, but Thorolf and Thorfid said that they had never taken man fine and would not take this. So let's break that apart. First of all, I'm writing down the term man fine. Isn't that I great? assume that's just wear guild, but wear guild, like... yeah, man price, pretty much. So to break this apart, essentially, there are certain sacred spaces in society. Like you don't do things in certain areas. It's supposed to be a peace agreement, even if you don't like each other. Blah blah blah. There's a holy space. You can't bring weapons into this sacrifice place. You can't, you know, it's like you don't bring your weapons into church. You don't bring your weapons into Theoden's Hall. You don't bring your weapons into... The walls of Rome? Sure. There you go. Was that a, was that actually a law? Yeah, but not it. Uh, yes, but it was easy to break because like the weapons they had are swords and everyone has knives. So, ah, like... it's this one. Yeah, so, like, there was still a lot of armed violence within the walls of Rome. It was just done with improvised weapons because you weren't allowed to have swords. Right. And to be fair, I think there was, like, a standard of swords are this long, and so they would make long daggers, essentially, mm -hmm. like stilettos, which are essentially swords. They're just one inch or one centimeter below that cutoff point, and therefore they're daggers, technically. I seem to remember, and I, I'm, I'm probably misremembering something from the partial historians, but I feel like that's the origin of the fasces symbol, the bundle of sticks with the axe in it, is that the lictors had that to like symbolize that they were the ones that had had the power of um, the law. Yeah, yeah, they they had 
they were able to do state-sanctioned violence. Yes, they were essentially the police force. Yeah, and everyone else wasn't. Like, no one else could have, like, axes in the city. Yeah. Correction. In Rome's Republican period, even the lictors were not allowed to carry weapons inside the walls of Rome. They had to remove the axe blade from their fasces. There are some exceptions, but that's theoretically the rule. The phrase or the story behind the facies was... Is that how you say it? Something like that. Facies, yeah. I assume you're right because you've taken Latin and I really haven't. (laughs) Anyway, the story behind this is, yeah, you've got the bundle of sticks and the axe in the middle of it and they would carry it and it would be tied together. Mm -hmm. But it's either, if you break the law, we will either beat you or cut your head off. And that's why it was a bundle of sticks plus the axe. Also, it meant that most of the time the axe was, like, concealed or, like, not concealed because everyone knew it was there and it pokes out a bit. But, like, put away. Like, yes, exactly, put away. (laughs) Because, like, you're really not supposed to have weapons at all. It's just that these guys get to have it, but they have symbolically put it away during the peace times. Yeah. I think. Yeah. This is, this is my understanding of the symbolism and how it interacts with the ban on weapons. Yes, essentially. So, anyway, Avent has broken that sacred space thing by spilling blood in this area. And so when it says he's made accursed and has to go abroad, this is the tradition of outlawing people. And Mac, I'll let you take this over because I think you know a little bit more about the outlawing than I do. Possibly, but I'm not sure there's a whole lot to say because it's a pretty simple um, idea. Like you either have, ma- you have major outlawry and minor outlawry, first of all. And minor outlawry is, is only different in that it's for a limited time, mm-hmm. whereas major outlawry is permanent. And it's basically saying, you are no longer protected by the laws of this country. And in fact, you have to leave this country. While you are an outlaw, you are outside the protection of the law. So people are not only allowed, but encouraged to kill you. So you better go. Like, at any time. No holds barred. Yeah. It was kind of the same uh, idea of having, like... I th- and I think sometimes it did go along with having a price put on your head, mm-hmm. just to, like... Make make sure that you couldn't hang around safely just because you were popular, which I think Gunnar tries to do in Njal's saga. Yes. Yeah, and so so you'd have bounty hunters go after these yeah. people to get that price. A couple interesting notes. There is a suggestion in, I believe, Grettir's saga that even major outlawry wasn't permanent permanent because... It's kind of hinted that maybe if Grettir had managed to survive 20 years as an outlaw, he would have been, like, pardoned. Yeah, he could come back. He didn't quite get there. But I think that's the only place it's mentioned, and it might be more of a tradition than a legal thing. Other interesting fact, another term for an outlaw in Iceland was Vardgr. Oh, yes! Which means wolf. It's where Tolkien gets the word warg. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just... Warg with a V and an R at the end. Because they had the R as like a, a re- like Asgard's name technically is Asgarder with the R on the mm-hmm. end. Yeah, it's just part of their um, inflection system. Yes. Isn't Varg, Varger the, the word that you're not supposed to call somebody? No, that's, it's close. It's Arger. Oh, okay, okay. And if somebody calls you that, you can kill them. Yes, it is a killing insult. Yep. And it is often translated as like weak or cowardly, but... At least according to Dr. Hughes, and I see no reason to not believe him, 
the literal meaning is that uh, you're a bottom. Yeah. <laughs> and that was considered a killing insult because not only was homosexuality frowned upon, but in the like single gender society that Iceland had at the time, if you were a top, that was still kind of masculine. Mm-hmm. So like you were, you were fine. Mm-hmm. But if you were bottoming, that was feminine and therefore it was, it was shameful. Yeah. And we've talked about that before in our sexuality episode as well, because this, this was a common idea throughout the Middle Ages that you would have a more severe penalty if you were the bottom in a homosexual mm-hmm. relationship. Unless it were if you were a lesbian or a woman engaging in sexual relations, if you took the man's role, then you were punished more severely because gender roles and gender norms. Right. Also, I guess technically, like, wasn't there like an extra punishment for for women if they were using a device? Yes. Which would technically be that. <laughs> yeah. And if, if you're you the used, top, you're the one who's using the yeah, device. Yeah, if you used, yeah, if you use something akin to a penis, then you were further outside the bounds of uh, femininity. So just rough all around. Shall we move on then? Yes, yes, sorry. Keep getting distracted. No, no worries. Okay, so, in the spring following that winter, Thorolf and Aeg made themselves ready to again go a freebooting, which is a delightful translation. Yes. Two men came to Aeg's ship, and they had an errand for him. They were to be brought before him, and they said that Aki was wealthy and had sent them thither with this message. Avend is lying off Jutland and thinks to waylay you as soon as you come from the south. He has gathered such a large force that you cannot withstand it if you encounter it all at once. But he himself goes into light vessels, and he is close here beside you. And when these tidings came before Aik, at once he and his took down their tenting. He packs up. And they sneak off silently and basically go out in their ships... So, they came at dawn to where Avend and his men lay at anchor, and they set upon them at once, hurling both stones and spears. Many of Avend's force fell there, but he himself leapt overboard and got to land by swimming, as did all of those who escaped. But A took his ship's cargo and weapons. Now, we again switch tacks to Chapter 50 of Athelstan, King of the English. Ooh! Yes. Bet you didn't know we were going to England. I did remember. I had forgotten it was this king specifically. Yes. Isn't he also a saint? Was he one of the... I feel like he shouldn't be, but let me check. I don't remember. I think he was supposed to be, like, very holy, but I don't know if he was actually a saint. The reason that he sticks out in my mind is, well, twofold. Uh, He passed a lot of laws that I've referred to in, like, my papers and theses and stuff. But also, uh, he, he, he got a particularly glowing treatment on Rex Factor, for those of you who listen to it. Ah... He also has an appearance in Vikings, the TV show, as, like, the monk that they keep and not kill at Lindisfarne, and then he becomes the King of England. (laughs) I feel like that's not accurate. It's very much not. So that very much confused me at first. I was like, surely it's not the same guy. It's just another guy called Athelstan. Nope, they decided to make him a King of England. Interestingly... If I type St. Athelstan, Google acts like it knows what I'm talking about, but I can't find him actually referred to as a saint anywhere. Interesting. Even in his Wikipedia article. And a lot of the Google results are like about the TV show Vikings and going like, is Athelstan a real person? (laughs) Aw. I mean, it makes sense. Okay. Anyway, 
When Athelstan had taken the kingdom, then those chieftains who had before lost their power to his forefathers rose in rebellion. They thought that this was the easiest time to claim back their own land, when a young king ruled the realm. These were the Britons, Scots, and Irish. King Athelstan therefore gathered himself an army, gave pay to all such as he... That's a horrible phrase. He paid them, uh, both foreigners and natives, for their service. The brothers Thorolf and Aeg were standing southwards along Saxony and Flanders when they heard that the king of England wanted men, and they wanted to gain much glory in his service. To clarify, because I, I got lost in there somewhere. Yes. This is Celtic peoples versus Anglo-Saxons? Yes. Yeah. Britain, Scots, Irish, the Celts against Athelstan and yeah, Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. The king received them well. He saw plainly that such followers would be great help. Full soon did the English king ask them to join uh, and become defenders of this land. So they agreed between them that they should become King Athelstan's men. England was thoroughly Christian in faith and had long been so when these things happened. And Athelstan was a good Christian. He was called Athelstan the Faithful. Oh, that's why I thought he was a saint. The king asked Thorolf and his brother to consent to take the first signing with the cross, for this was a common custom then. It was a common custom for those who took soldiers' pay in Christian armies, since those who were prime-signed could hold all intercourse with Christians and heathens alike, while retaining the faith that was most to their mind. Thorolf and Aeic did this at the king's request, and let themselves be prime-signed. They had 300 men who took the king's pay. Question. Yes. What What is prime sign? I found an article on this. Oh, okay. Do we want to come back to that during Dungeon Master's Dictionary or do it now? I'm going to do it now, but I'm going to come back to the article because it's interesting for other reasons. So okay. this article is called The Skull and Bones in Aix Saga, A Viking, a Grave, and Paget's Disease, which is why I'm going to come back to it. But anyway, this is by Jesse Bayok, and here's the section that talks about prime signing. Quote, if Thordis, as a newly converted Christian, wanted to move her stepfather's body from his burial mount to a prominent resting place in the church, Aeg himself was entitled to a burial in hallowed ground. During his service as a mercenary for the English king Athelstan, he had been prime-signed. Primsining is a Norse term meaning provisional baptism, adopted from the Latin primum signum, or prima signatio. It consisted of making the sign of the cross over non-Christians in order to cleanse them of the evil spirit. After being prime-signed, pagans could attend mass and enter into full relationships with Christians. Aeg remained buried in the small church, blah, blah, blah. Yes, so that's what prime-signing is. And I like, it's very interesting that being prime-signed means that you can have interfaith relationships. I mean, I guess that makes sense. It does make sense, but it's something that a lot of Christians in the modern era would push back very, very hard against. Well, a lot of people of various different faiths push very hard against that. Yeah, I, I, even in places that were relatively religiously tolerant in the Middle Ages, like the Islamic world actually had a lot of interfaith cities mm -hmm. because they didn't, like they encouraged but did not force conversion. Right. But I, I'm not sure they were they were sold on interfaith relationships mm -mm. necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So this is really, really interesting. And it was straight up illegal in a lot of Europe. I think we talked about it in the uh, animal trials, mm -hmm. is that there was some argument over whether an interfaith relationship counted as bestiality because the oh two peoples gosh. were so different, they might as well be different species. Oh, I hate that. I know, it's horrible. Mm, that's nasty. But yeah, so, so the point is there that 
prime signing is kind of like a catch-all for letting non-Christians into your society. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so that's what prime signing is. So Thorolf and Aik were prime signed, and they joined King Athelstan's army. Bit of an odd transition here because we were about to get back into the story, and then we realized that if we wanted time to do this article before going to our segments, we kind of had to do it now. So this is to say, we're ending Ale Saga on a bit of a cliffhanger this month. You'll have to wait until part four to find out how things go with King Athelstan. Now enjoy this neat article that Zoe found. So, on that note, let me jump over to the article because I have a lot to say about the article. Go for it. Okay, so this article, while it talks about prime signing, that is not its actual topic. The actual topic of this saga essentially postulates that Aik, Scatlagrim, and Fadulf all had Paget's disease of bone. So, let me jump into that. So, did you just stumble across this while looking up prime signing? Yes. And I got so distracted because I, I find this so interesting. Yeah, this is exactly how I do research, too. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm like, fascinating! Let me go on a tangent for three hours. All right, quote. This article explores the possibility of a new informational source and offers an accompanying methodological approach. It proposes that medical and archaeological evidence radically changes previous perceptions about Aik, altering our understanding of the warrior's character, interpretation of his poetry, and historical accuracy of Aik's saga. Such a change is possible because of the conflicting aspects of Aik's personality, which are attributed here to the progression of an illness, that is to say, Paget's, which have been previously almost exclusively interpreted along a traditional line as literary dualism. And the whole light and darkness thing of mm-hmm. Thorolf and Aik and so on. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're not twins, but they're basically the good and evil twin. The good and Thorolf evil twin. And yeah. yeah. And willful exaggeration by a 13th century author of 10th century Viking heroism. My intent in expanding the discourse by adding epidemiological information is to add a new dimension to our understanding of both saga figure and saga. Through a combination of historical, medical, and archaeological analysis, we have the tools to perceive Aik as more than just a 13th century literary invention. Rather, we see Aik as both a literary dark figure and an individual whose remarkably disfigured bones astonished his descendant Skafti Thorinesan in the mid-12th century. Skafti's observation of Aik's remains, an extraordinarily well-documented incident of medieval archaeology, is explored in this article. So, as we know, Aik is shown as this dark, brooding character, ugly, hulking, massive, giant. These are ways he is described. And also we see this in Scatlagrim and Fadolf. And what our author argues is, quote, Aik may have suffered from a disfiguring pathology called Paget's disease. This disease, which is perhaps hereditary or of viral provenance, may cause blindness in later life as well as progressive loss of hearing and balance. Aik suffered from all of these disabilities. According to the saga, in old age, he found difficulty in moving and in both his sight and hearing began to fail him badly. It's actually kind of astounding to me how spot on the symptoms and like how the pathology presents matches to Aik. So there are some very interesting images of figures with Paget's disease 
Mm-hmm. This is in particular Paget's disease of bone. There is also like a Paget's disease of skin, which can affect breast tissue. So content warning, if you look those up, there are some gnarly images. Yeah, that sounds like there would be. Yep, just warning. But if you look up the bone structure of people who have Paget's disease, their legs are like bending, they're curved. Or if you've ever seen um, depictions of the Huns, you know how the Huns would be on horseback so much that they would have bow legs? I have not seen this. That's one of the things that would happen. So we have archaeological evidence for that. It's sort of like that. These figures, these skeletons look like they're all bent over and crooked, even though this would be them standing up straight. So anyway, we have very good research that Skafti's parentage is traced directly through six generations to Aik, from Skafti to Isa, Helga, Gerlaug, Skuli, Thorstein, and Aik. So through two sagas, we have a very clear genealogy that these two are related. Skafti in his saga, essentially what I gathered through this article, I have not actually read Skafti's saga, he... Not inter. What's the opposite of inter? He excavates, essentially, Aik's body to move him to a churchyard. And he finds Aik's skull. And it does not look like a normal skull. And of course, if you read through the saga, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, yeah, it's a, he's, it's a hero ancestor. Like, whatever. He's just got a weird skull. But when you dig into this, as our author argues, these are actually further symptoms of Paget's. So, Quote, the saga is precise in describing the skull as ridged all over on the outside like a scallop shell. This precision is striking since the words scallop shell and barotr, ridged, waved, corrugated, wrinkled, talk about like small waves on water pushed by the wind. And these are not common in the sagas. A computer search of the corpus of family sagas, including all the short stories, reveals that barutur and the other word meaning scallop shell are used only in this passage from Aix Saga. That's a pretty evocative image, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. And the article actually has a picture of what one of these skulls look like. And it is absolutely like... It's almost like sheets, like white sheets that have ripples on them. It's very interesting. Anyway, quote, the thickening is most strikingly seen on the cut surface of the skull cap. A pathological diagnosis can readily be made from it alone. The cement lines are wide, prominent, and irregularly scalloped. These are descriptions of it from pathological textbooks, essentially. It also has skulls from, skulls or bones of those with pagets are unusually hard and they whiten when hit. And both of these are described as such. Both of these instances are described as such in Skafti Saga because apparently he like whacks at Eagle's skull with a hammer. I'm trying to figure out like why he would do that. I don't know. I haven't read the saga. I'm just quoting from this article. Also of note, quote, the resiliency of pagetic bone has long been noticed, especially because its unusual hardness hindered surgery until modern diamond-tipped instruments were developed, which I thought was very, very interesting. Like, it's really hella hard, which makes sense why Aik and Scott Grimm and, and Fiddle could get hit with weapons and not break bones or not be hurt as severely as other men. Yeah, okay. There's also a note that... Even when the skull is hugely thickened and all the bones are exceedingly altered in structure, the mind remains unaffected. 
All of these characteristics, including clarity of thought, fit Aik, who recorded a physically troubled old age through insightful and innovative verse. Mm-hmm. And I then, and then we talk a little bit more about how pagets can also cause what is known as like lion's face, which is when the especially the cheekbones of the skull mm-hmm. protrude and come outward, which matches up with how Aik even describes himself as like exceedingly ugly. His facial structure is also warped, and this can get worse through his age. We have an interesting description of him. This is from this is from Aik Saga. Aik was marked by prominent features. He had a broad forehead and large brows, a nose that was not long but enormously thick, and lips that, seen through his beard, were both wide and long. He had a remarkably broad chin, and this largeness continued throughout the jawbone. He was thick-necked and broad-shouldered, and more so than other men, he was hard-looking and fierce when angry. Well-built and taller than others, he had thick wolf-gray hair, but was early bald. While he sat as written above, he jerked one eyebrow down to his chin and lifted the other one up to into his hairline. Which is, this is not Padgett's, this is just him being dramatic. Yeah, I, th- I think we're going to see that uh, next time we do this, actually, because I seem to remember that is something he does in front of Athelstan. Yes. Distortion and hardening of the cranium, changes which are characteristic of Paget's disease, may have led to that lion's face feature. It is in Aix's old age that we most clearly discern the major symptoms of advanced Paget's, the loss of balance in hearing, and the phenomenon described as a great head hanging forward in the textbook of pathology, which Aic describes in a verse that he himself writes, quote, My bald plate bobs and blunders. I bang it when I fall. My cock's gone soft and clammy, and I can't hear when they call. I mean, his, sorry, his what's gone what? <laughs> you really gonna make me say this line again? No, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably bleep it, too. His cock's gone soft and clammy. He can't get it up anymore. He's an old man. Why did the author of this article find it necessary to include that, unless that's also a symptom? That isn't, but what he is emphasizing here is that his head comes forward, Mm -hmm. which is part of Paget's, and he also cannot hear, which is part of Paget's. Yeah, I guess if there are legitimate symptoms on either side, (laughs) it would be weird to just cut it out. Yes. Uh, It also talks about his pain and aches that he has, and also being very, very cold. Which, again, he puts these things into verse, which our author points out is unusual in Viking sagas to talk about your aches and pains. Like, we've seen this in Old English sagas, like The Wanderer, we hear about Mm. the struggles. But again, that's mostly internal struggles. That's not like, oh, my feet are cold, and I'm cold sitting in this boat. It's more like, I ache for my loved ones who are dead and gone. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, there is my feet are cold. But... (laughs) But it's, in Viking sagas, it seems like a more common uh, portrayal of the heroes is that they're almost insensitive to pain. Yes, exactly. So the Viking sagas don't have this. So it's a little bit strange or very strange, if you will, that Aik is putting this into verse. Mm-hmm. Our author notes that Aik's headaches and chilled feelings are consistent with his other symptoms. Sufferers from pagets sometimes experience headaches caused by the pressure of an enlarged vertebrae pressing in on the spinal cord. They also have high incidence of arteriosclerosis and heart damage as the heart is overtaxed and blood is diverted from the extremities in order to support the rapid process of bone remodeling. The chill that Aik endures is consistent with the attendant circulatory problems often in the feet which accompany such illnesses. It also later goes on to talk about how this comes and goes in waves where 
the bone will grow and then it'll kind of slow down. And so there's ups and downs of having high energy, low energy, high energy, low energy. Would such a poet, however, know the particulars of Paget's well enough to construct an in-depth portrait of a man with cold feet, chills, headaches, a swaying, hanging head, inconsistent bouts of lethargy, loss of balance, hearing and sight? The answer is even clearer when we remember that the saga makes no connection whatsoever between the bones and the disease. In fact, the medieval text draws quite the opposite conclusion. It points out how useful such a tough head would be for a warrior, noting that anybody could guess that the skull wouldn't be easily cracked by a small fry while it still had its skin and flesh on it. Even the 13th century author had observed a person with the symptoms of pagets and modeled his character on Aic. He could not have known the specific attributes of pagetic bone and the skull, the thickened, resilient, ruffled surface structure that whitens upon impact. Which... I find to be a pretty convincing argument that he has Paget's. Yeah, it's almost suspiciously convincing. I kind of want to look into it more and see. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, I am picking out the most interesting bits to read. The article itself is 29 pages long, so it's much, much more thorough than I am being here. Blah, blah, blah. We have like the up and down with energy. He goes into drowsy, apathetic, not wanting to eat. It is known, however, that the pains of Paget's increase at night. And then he makes an argument that Fatal like, gets grumpy in the evening. And therefore, that could be one way that he gets his nickname as Night Wolf, is that he mm-hmm. goes out at night because he can't sleep and he's in pain and he's grouchy, which I find less convincing in this case because there is the whole, like, he's got a troll for, like, a grandfather or something. And I, I'm more akin to side with okay, that part is just mythological and fantasy, but also probably there's a little bit of pageants there, maybe, but not as much for Fadolf, but definitely for Aik. But that's how I read that one anyway. So anyway, I found this to be a super, super interesting article that paints a really convincing, to me, picture that Aik not only had this disease, but also that in the medieval quote-unquote archaeology of Skafti saga, it, I mean, it's pretty clearly laid out that he had something going on with him. And even if it wasn't Pagets, which our author does go into, he says they're like, there's a couple other things that it could be. I think Pagets is the most convincing, but there was something definitely going on with this guy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's what I had on, on this one. All right. Hang on, I want to show you the skull because it's really cool. Oh, wow, yeah. Like, that's, isn't that? That's wild. Yeah, so if you think of Aik, who went bald early, like, this is a guy who was also bald. Yeah, and his father also went bald, that's why it's called Scott Legrim. Right. And then you've got this weird-looking skull that looks absolutely gnarly and bad. Mm-hmm. That would freak me out on the battlefield. Yeah, maybe I've been watching too much Star Trek, but my first thought was that looks like a Klingon. It does, it absolutely does look like a Klingon, actually. <laughs> So anyway, I found this article made a a very convincing argument for Aik having Paget's disease, which was, he also makes an interesting point that it does exist in Iceland, where previously they thought that it did not exist in Iceland at all. So it's interesting that if it does exist, well, if it was Paget's disease, then there would be a pretty much a, you could almost trace who had Paget's disease in Iceland over like a thousand years, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. 
But anyway, I always love seeing STEM and the arts and humanities come together in articles. So this one was really, really fun for me to read and get into. I highly recommend checking this article out. But yeah, that's what I had for Aik Saga this week. We'll jump into the actual battle next time. All right. All right, let's go through our segments. What say you? Best dialogue. All right. I wrote down a couple suggestions. Yes. All right. So one of the ones I wrote down was Ale had a pretty good poem to Olvir right before he stabbed him. <laughs> I don't remember what the poem was anymore, but I remember thinking it was good. Okay. But the one that I have decided to nominate as my favorite dialogue is when Ale asks Ari, I think that's his name? Aki. Aki. If he wants to come out of the basement and they, he very politely says, yes, I would very much like to come out of the basement. Thank yes. You. I think that's got to be the line. It's like, would you like to come up? It's like, yes, thank you. I've been in prison down here for a year. I would, I would actually very, very much like that. Mm-hmm. Please get me out. All right. All Toprast. Best death. As with all the sagas, we have a lot of deaths. There are a lot of deaths. I didn't make note of any in particular. Did you? I mean, I don't know if I would consider it a best death. Like, personally, I wouldn't want to go out this way, but being stabbed and then vomited upon is a pretty gnarly death. <laughs> that is, a, that's at the very least, a, uh, yeah, I think gnarly is the right word. Yeah, you know. I guess the, there was also a hall burning, which at least has to be mentioned in this category. True, true. Okay, there is, like, the Thorvald guy who got killed on hallowed ground. Was there anything special about his actual death other than the fact that it was on hallowed ground? I, I'm trying to remember the. I mean, the scene. he got run through, but so did. Yeah. Bard. Lots of people get run through. Yeah. <laughs> Those are our options. Take your pick. Um, I think you're right that um, what's his name? Olvir, stab and vomit. I think that was Bard. Was it Bard? Anyway, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was Bard because he's like, here, drink the final cup. Okay. Yeah, the guy that got stabbed and then vomited on has, I think, the most memorable death here. Nasty. At least he fell face down, so he was being vomited on, like, on his back. Yes, that's better. You know, I wouldn't, yeah. Dying breath full of vomit. Mm -hmm. No. All right. D&D game. I also made a couple notes. Let's go. The first one is not in the story, but I wrote down... A sacrifice of guardian spirits. <laughs> yes, of course. And I think that would be oh. like a really, that would actually be a really interesting addition to like the giant evil ritual or something. It's very Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Plus, then you have to like go on a quest to find and capture the spirits to sacrifice. Yeah. Like, how are you going to do that? How are you going to capture a fire spirit? I mean, that's definitely something that, I mean, again, I think this would definitely be an evil act. So the PCs may or may not be the ones doing it unless you can finagle them. Yes. Or if you're running an evil campaign. Or if you're running an evil campaign. But I've never seen one of those go well. I feel like they probably could. No, wait, I've run an evil campaign before. It was fine. Really? I'm, I'm impressed. When I hear about those, it's usually not a good time. I mean, it was in some ways weird. And it got off the rails a couple times, but I think it overall went fine. I didn't set out to run an evil campaign. That's right. You've told me about this one. It just sort of ended up there. I mean, that's happened a couple times. But the one <laughs> I'm thinking of, I told the, the players at the beginning, like, all right, y'all try and make a group of characters that fit together. Mm -hmm. And this campaign is going to be centered on like one town out in the hinterlands. 
and I will design what the vibe of that town is around your characters. Mm-hmm. And so they just decided to make their characters evil, and so it was an and so it wasn't like an evil goblin town that they lived in. That's amazing. They also decided because I encouraged them all like you should think of like what your role in the town will be. Like mm-hmm. what's what's your job? One of them owned a brothel that two more of them worked at. That's amazing. That would make for an awkward party dynamic. Like, hey, my boss is here <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Do I get overtime for this? <laughs> if I seduce someone like outside of the brothel, is that overtime pay? Yeah, no overtime <laughs> while you're wearing clothes. Like. <laughs> I, I think the only time it got out of hand was when they 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 did a couple kind of unnecessary murders and tried to claim that they had been committed by goblin children who were being denied their murderous heritage. Oh, I see. I, that would cause problems. I do think that the one of the reasons that it didn't become like a, a an orgy of horror, like so many of the evil campaign stories that are told, is like, these were all like mature adults. They were mm-hmm. all grad students. Mm-hmm. They were also all women. I don't know if that enters into it, but that might have a, that might be a factor. There's a lot of Whatever's there under the surface is uniquely feminine, I think. I don't know. There's a there's a different flavor between how women like to get revenge and act maliciously versus men, in my experience. Yeah. I'm not hugely into the gender binary, but I do feel like I would trust a group of women with an evil campaign more than I trust a group of men. Oh, yeah. That might be prejudiced on my part, but that is my, like... I think... There are trends. There are trends in terms of, I don't know, gender norms, gender binary spectrum. I feel like there are trends that you can kind Mm. of rely on. But anyway, good evil campaign idea. Yes. Sacrificing spirits. Or for a good campaign, stopping someone from doing same. Yes. Very good. Okay. What else? Personally, I want to have an entire, like, you go on a quest get captured by a whole bunch of people and have to escape. And also there's trap doors in every single room. And there's a guy and his two sons who have been in the basement for a year. I think that could be really fun. Like that's a, that's a level all on its own. Maybe you don't go back in and like burn the house down, Mm -hmm. but there's at least something there. Plus, if you'll remember, it was Aki who warned that Avend had ships lying in wait, so it did come back as a favor. True. Oh, right, I had another thing. Uh, Yes. Where is it? Oh, all right. The phrase unfair drinking. I don't know necessarily what it means, but I feel like you as a GM could figure out what it means, and no matter what you decide, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. Like, is it cheating at a drinking game? Is it, like, there are different qualities of ale? I feel like there's got to be something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've... But I don't know what... Maybe it's got magic involved. Maybe. I don't know. Like, maybe it's an enchanted drinking horn that's always full for one person, but it doesn't like another person, so there's only, like, a sip left at any given time. <laughs> you know that story of Thor and the never-ending drinking horn? That was unfair drinking. That was unfair drinking. That's a very good... Okay, sum that one up in, like, three sentences for the listeners who either don't know or don't recall this one. All right, uh, it's the story of Utgartha Loki. Thor and Loki and like a couple mortals that they just have with them are going to a feast at Utgarder Loki's place, who is a giant, and they play games of skill and strength and whatnot. And one of them is a drinking contest. And Utgarder Loki hands Thor a drinking horn and says, 
Anyone in my court can drain this horn in three drafts. See if you can too. And Thor cannot drain the horn, no matter how hard he tries. And this is like this is this is the vibe. This is the whole night. Is like mm-hmm. he he gives them challenges that are supposed to be very easy, and the gods fail at them despite being gods. And it's later revealed that he was cheating in all of them, and the reason that Thor couldn't drain the horn was because the other end was magically linked to the ocean and just kept refilling. And somehow he didn't notice that it tasted like salt water instead of ale. It's really shitty ale. Maybe that was also illusion magic. <laughs> Probably. We won't put it put it past him. I like that. Unfair drinking. Vaguely related to different definitions of the word fair, and also Star Trek, as mentioned earlier. I've been watching through the original series lately because I because I hadn't before. I'd only seen a couple episodes. Oh, so I'm going really? Back. I love yeah. the original series. No, I, I grew up on Next Generation, and Fair I watched enough. Voyager and Deep Space Nine in my twenties. And right now, I'm really enjoying Lower Decks, but they have a lot of like mythology and continuity gags. So mm-hmm. I've, I decided I should go back and watch the original series, so I'm not missing out on stuff. Anyway, in the probably infamous episode, The Naked Time. When Sulu was running around shirtless with a sword. <laughs> I love that one. There is a scene where, and this is so far my favorite dialogue of the entire series. He like comes up to Uhura and like does this very like dramatic Swishy. swashbuckly stance and like yes. throws his arm around her shoulder and goes, I'll protect you, fair maiden. And she just kind of pushes him away and says, sorry, neither. <laughs> Which is brilliant. <laughs> I really think it just slipped right past the censors somehow. Absolutely, it did. Because I, I think that is the only time in all of Star Trek where it's been confirmed like, yeah, Uhura f- Yes, yeah, she does. Because they didn't want to mention sex on the original series. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's, that's great, actually. That's amazing. <laughs> all right. Uh, like, yeah, to be fair, like, thing. they don't mention, they don't mention sex, but... James T. Kirk is out here, like, smashing all of the aliens. Yeah, it's definitely heavily implied that he's sleeping around. But, like, we also Every see episode. him, like, m- like, meet old flames. And it's never said, like, yeah, they, they slept together. Like, there's even one episode with, um, I'm forgetting her last name, but it's, it's, no, her last name is Noel. Dr. Noel. And there's, like, this, the, the same, like, tension of, like, I have a history with her. <laughs> And th- but then when it's like elaborated on the in the episode, it's like they flirted at a Christmas party, but he didn't invite her back to oh his room my because gosh. he's a superior officer, and that would be wrong. And like that was the whole history. And he could never get over it. Rip. Oh my gosh. It's heavily implied that Kirk sleeps around, but whenever it gets into specific, it's like no, it was totally innocent, actually. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. Oh, okay. Anything else? Yeah, other stuff for D and D. Okay, the entire drinking horn thing. Yes. Oh, yes, with the runes. With the runes. Super cool. Especially because I feel like we don't get enough of dual, like, evil magic in terms of, Mm -hmm. like, yes, you can physically poison the thing and curse it. You can do both. I feel like D&D players forget that because they either get caught up so much in the magic or they're like, I will just poison it. They forget that they can do both at once. They're not mutually exclusive. Also a good thing to have like one of your suspicious villain type figures do is because like if your villain hands them a drink, yeah. they're going to cast detect curse and detect poison. But if they do one and it comes back positive, they're, they're probably not, not going to bother to other. do the second one. That's so meta. That's really good. 
10 out of 10 DMs out there, you absolutely should do this and report back. Yes. This is really good. They're not, yeah, they're not going to think about it. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll cast one. It'll be fine. I mean, given how 5th edition simplifies things, maybe it's the same spell now. But back Ugh. in my day, they were separate. I think they're still separate. There's got to be two separate things you can do, you know, especially if there's like very clear runes on the side or something, you know, yeah. like, oh, magic. <laughs> yeah. Or if you let them make a spot check to see him like slipping something into the drink mm -hmm. and then it's like, no, actually the drinking horn is cursed also. Also, it's both, buddy. I like that. There's You can do a lot with that. Play around with it. All right. I think that gets most of what I had thought of. I think there's probably room for working in prime sign. Like, obviously, like, Ooh. most D&D campaigns don't include Christianity. But, like, an equivalent where you can be, like, provisionally or temporarily inducted into a religion. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not really one of us, but for the purposes of this quest, you are. Maybe to take on a quest from the temple of XYZ, you know? Yeah. Then you have to be prime signed. And, like, they'd really like it if you actually converted, but, like, they're willing to compromise. Yeah, they'll compromise. We just have to go through this ritual just in case. It's, you know, just sign the paperwork. It's fine. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they're not the evangelical types and they're more the secluded types. And, like, we don't, we don't really need more people. But. But. But in order to, for you to be thing. successful on this yeah. quest, you need the protection of our deity. And so we're going to give you like a temporary thing. Mm -hmm. You're still not really part of the group. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe you get a temporary buff out of it or something, yeah. you know? Maybe if you're successful, we can talk about making it permanent. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, there's that's a lot of fun. You could do a lot with that. All right. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? Anything nowadays that we have from this. I mean, pageants, but I already covered that. Hmm. Holy spaces being sacred. That doesn't necessarily come from this text, but it's a carryover. Yeah. I can't think of anything that's any, like, plot elements or anything that mm -hmm. seemed like something I'd seen before. Like, outside of the saga. We so. do get the cold is the council of women thing again with Eric and Gunhild. Right, but that is, that's a genre staple, like more so for the sagas than for the modern age. True, but I feel like that's still a trope that we see, where women, because again, Gunhild was like, hey, bros, we need to do this evil thing, I'm gonna have my men do it. Like, the woman is not necessarily taking action, but she is the one pulling the strings behind the scene. I think that's still a trope that All we right, see. Yeah, I think that is still a trope, yeah. But I, I was trying to think of like modern circumstances where like the women are the one egging on the fight and the only thing i could think of was like the old southern women in hoas <laughs> well yeah that for sure karens yeah <laughs> across the board uh, well okay to again go back to game of thrones cersei cersei sansa those type of strong women take that same role they're not mm -hmm. the ones going out to fight but they are the ones making those judgments egging their men on to do things. So I think even though it is generally shown in a negative light, I think this type of quote unquote strong female character is pulled from in large part these sagas and these stories and this tradition. Yeah. Because we don't see that in the French chivalric tradition. That's for sure. <laughs> and you know what? Like, maybe the fact that it's always shown in a negative light is an element of misogyny. Like, mm -hmm. maybe that guy really does need killing, and you should listen to her. Yeah. Sometimes people need killing. True. Very true. 
And to be fair, there's like, if you look at this saga from like a, a big perspective or just from King Harold's perspective, they have every single right to go after this family. Ale's a menace. He's a pirate and a murderer and a hall burner. Yeah, completely. Even even if you separate the whole thing from the whole conquesting and taking over a land, even if you just stick to generation by generation what these families do, yeah, they're still terrible people who break the law. But anyway, maybe that's one, maybe it's not. Do with that what you will. Oh, that reminds me. Back in, I think it was the first Ale episode, we talked about the guy who hid in a burial mound. Yes. I found out recently, apparently in Heimskringla, they talk about that same incident, but it's not hiding in a burial mound. They go into the burial mound because they're like, if we're not going to be kings anymore, it is the end of our lives. So we're going to bury ourselves alive, Holy basically. Shit. I think that's, that's so much, much more hardcore. It's basically their way of like going out with honor. Yeah, I'll take that. That's, yeah. Dang. I just thought that was cool. Very cool. All right. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. Food, cheese curds, butter, oat milk, yep. and ale. I actually made specific note of curds and the oat drink mm -hmm. because those are going to be slightly different than how we think of them now. The whole like curds that are like floating in the, the sewer, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's a whole like staple of the medieval Icelandic diet that you could use to give some extra flavor to your world building. Yes, very true. And if you could figure out what the oat drink is, hey, future Mac, look that up and put it in if you figure it out. So, first of all, f*** you for giving me homework, but I took a look at the original text to get the Old Norse word we were talking about. It's Alfer. Cleesby Vigfason, the standard dictionary for Old Norse, or at least the one I was taught to use, says that it now means buttermilk, but that Magnaeus whom I think might be the famous Aurony Magnuson using his Latinate pen name, defined it as, and I'm going to pronounce the Latin wrong, but I think this is said Sorbitio Avenacia, or possibly Avenacia, which Cleesby Vigfason describes as, quote, a sort of common ale brewed from oats, unquote. However, that Latin phrase I mangled a second ago literally translates to oat drink. And I am unable to find any instance of that phrase on Google that is not this same quotation from Cleesby Vigfason glossing this same line in Ale Saga. I also can't trace this back to the original source, because neither Aurni nor Magnaeus is on Cleesby Vigfason's source list. And in fact, this is the only instance of Magnaeus in the text. So who knows what publication they're referring to, if any. It's possible this is from some scribbled marginalia or something forever lost to time. So I have no idea how this dictionary decided it was ale specifically. But you can, of course, make ale from oats, so it's not unreasonable. However... That would seem to contradict the whole we are out of ale thing, which was kind of an important point of that story. So I'm left shrugging my shoulders here. I have no idea why Cleesby Vigvason is going with oat ale over oat milk, unless that was actually Magnaeus' interpretation and they're assuming he had personal knowledge and just following him. So I'm doing what I'm pretty sure the translator of Zoe's edition did. I'm going to mutter some imprecations at all these long dead old white men, and then go... It, I'll just say oat drink and hope no one calls me on it. Then you can uh, also use that. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Terminology. Any cool words. 
Yes, I wrote down a few. This, oh, this notebook is really paying off. <laughs> really, it is. It's very quick. All right, so the first one that I've got is Bailiff, which Ooh. we all know as like the, the, the cop who stands in court and threatens you if you're getting rowdy, or at least that's how we know it in the U.S. I think it might have other definitions elsewhere. Probably does, actually. I assume that since it's it's a title with some history, there are some, like, hangovers in the UK and other places. Mm -hmm. But in the US, it's, ju it's just like the court security officer. Yes. But you used it in the saga as being, like, a administrator type. I didn't even notice that. It was near the beginning, I assume, because it's the first thing I have written down. I checked, and apparently it could be a general term for officers of the king, which can include anything from, like, mayors and chief magistrates and stuff, all the way down to, like, general purveyors of state-sponsored violence. Interesting. I didn't realize it was such a catch-all. Yeah. Yeah, apparently it, it just means, like, an officer of the, of the crown. Hmm. And so it can have a lot of meanings. Or at least... I'm trying to summarize the OED entry on it. Right. Makes sense. But I think that using that title could possibly help you flesh out your your world building a bit. Because, you know, you don't want everyone to be like the Duke and the Sheriff. and the, mm -hmm. You want there to be mm -hmm. some variety. There's a network of titles that may mean different things and are in different relations to each other. And you want to be able to take advantage of that complexity. Yep. I used... Uh... I like playing with terms. I really enjoy playing with terms. So one of the terms that I used is domestic. As in domestic servant? Yeah, essentially. Like, oh, he's the domestic of the king. But he, like, the domestic is whoever is in charge of, like, that particular region. And so, I don't know, you can play with it like that. Maybe a domestic is actually, like, in charge of the household or, you know, whatever. Mm. But, I don't know, it's fun to play with terms like that. I only know domestic as a noun in the sense that it's used in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, in which case it's the household servant. Yes. All right. What else have you got? We had prime signing. Yep, I did mark that down, but I also checked it off because we talked about it in our D&D. True. Yeah. So my next one is Fire Hall. Ooh. I'm, I'm presuming this isn't the place where, that we're burning down. This is like no. where we're gathering. Right, yeah. Like, I, I know that it just means, like, okay, it's a hall, and there's a fireplace in it. But I feel like saying fire hall instead of just hall gives it a little cooler of a vibe. And it, it maybe emphasizes the value of finding someplace that has light and warmth in a cold part of the world where there's no electric lighting outside. Very true. I like that. I think that's something that we vastly underestimate. Yeah. Like, in D&D, &D, in life in general. Like, just take a moment and, like, obviously, if your work demands that you're on the internet and you do the thing, which most people does, like, do that or whatever. But take an evening to go without internet, go without electricity, and just let yourself be in that moment. One of the things that I started doing is I started turning off the lights and putting on a candle, like, an hour before I go to bed. And the difference that it actually does for me in terms of my brain recognizing like, oh, it's nighttime now. My sleep has improved oh. so much just because the melatonin in your brain starts to get going again and in your body. And it says, oh, OK, this is actually nighttime because I, I, like, I feel like everybody knows like, don't be on your phone before bed. 
and we're told that and blue light and blah, blah, blah. But even with regular electricity beaming into our heads all the time, it's harder for our brain to adjust to those natural day-night cycles that we've Mm -hmm. been used to for so long. And I don't know, this is not me trying to preach, but just try it for funsies one night. Also, just because candles are a vibe and they're an aesthetic and they're fun. Also, please be aware if you have pets or children, monitor the candles, maybe use like little fake ones or whatever, but Mm -hmm. monitor the candles. It helps me a lot. And also it gets my writing brain going just because it's an environment that is so, I guess, associated with fantasy and D&D and all those things. It puts me in a more creative mindset as well as, I don't know, I get really good sleep. So (laughs) do with that as you will. But just try it. Just for fun. Just try it. And if you want to be more ambitious about it, go around town and shoot out all the streetlights so the whole town can enjoy it. And you can see the night sky for once in our horrible modernized urban lives. The stars are beautiful. Oh yeah, you you grew up in Alaska. You've probably actually seen it. Not a summer night sky. That's right. Only during the winter. It, It actually wigged me out a lot. I don't remember where I was. I think I was in Ireland, like staying with a friend in the countryside. And it was the summertime and I looked up and the constellations were all wrong. And I got really confused because I I sort of forgot that they changed during the seasons. I'm like, where's Orion? I'm so anxious right now. (laughs) What is my place in the cosmos? Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was a bit of a tangent. The next one I have written down is stave in the poetic term rather than the big stick term. Ooh, I feel like those have to be related, though. I'm sure they're related. Like, Was it a unit of measurement or did it just mean like a stick of a certain length and like a line in a poem is like a stick and so it's a stave? I don't know. I'm making a note to check this out later. Anyway, yes, stave. That's a good one. I also have freebooting, but I feel like we've talked about that one before. That's a good one. And finally, manfine. Yes, manfine. Which I feel like is a really good substitute term for like bounty or weirguild. Mm -hmm. Not because it sounds good, but because it sounds kind of unusual mm-hmm. and and rough mm-hmm. like in a way that like bounty will just roll right off of your your reader or your player or mm-hmm. whatever because it's a word we see all the time but if you have like especially like a, a maybe your proud warrior archetype refers to it as a man fine and that's something that will make it stand out yeah yeah definitely it's something that'll catch your player's attention at the very least yeah all right Those are all the words I had written down. Do you have any? I don't think I have any, but the one thing that we haven't, like, brought up in particular is that Gunhild, I think you brought this up last time, but Gunhild is a witch queen. Yes. Which I just love as a term. It's a great term. So please include that if you can. That's, (laughs) it's just fun. Yeah. So I include it peripherally. I don't remember if she's ever actually referred to as a witch queen, but that is definitely what she is. That's what she is. Putting it in. Yeah. All right. Street smarts. What do we learn in this text? Don't try and have two different parties at the same time in the same place. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to go well. At best, you're going to get sitcom shenanigans. At worst, you will get stabbed and vomited on. Which is a hell of a way to go. Preferably don't. Yeah, like, it is a hell of a way to go in the negative sense of that phrase. Yes. Don't listen to your sister when she suggests killing somebody during a religious service. Yeah, I know we've all been in that situation. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and you've just got to tough it out. Maybe just respect religious services in general. Yes. Otherwise, you may be outlawed. Don't try to scam people who carry swords. Don't try to scam pirates. Like, they may yeah. be dumb and kind of drunk, but they're also liable to get violent about it if they figure it out. If you're going to do something with your prisoners, maybe just kill them right away. Yeah. <laughs> that's not really good advice. Maybe don't do that. No, that is good advice. I think that's on the evil overlord list. Like, you don't yeah. like set up an elaborate death trap or monologue about your plan first to go that's, or go yeah. like, oh, I'll kill them tomorrow. Just, just kill them now. Just kill them now. Yeah, and f*** this trap door shit. Yeah, who dug out all those basements is what I want to know. I guess all the people he's been enslaving. I guess. That's so bizarre. Like, is I feel like that's the only time we see trap doors in the sagas. I'm not sure we often see basements in the sagas. We because don't. That's, that's going to be like hard frozen ground. Like, it's going to be difficult to make those. It's a stupid idea to do. Like, unless you're building a root cellar. And even then, you just dig a hole into the side of a hill and stuff the stuff in there. Yeah. Maybe the whole hall is elevated and they're just, like, in the space under it? Well, see, I want to know how they had a loft, but there was a trap door in the loft to the treasury. <laughs> I mean, I guess that means that, and this is a design that I encourage you to use in your dungeons, GMs, that there is a room on the main floor that there isn't a door into, but you have to go up and through a trap door on the second floor. That's hilarious. 10 out of 10. I had a GM a few years ago who did a, a wild thing in a, like a, a tower-based dungeon we were in and put a pit trap on the second floor that dropped you into a room on the first floor that there wasn't an exit from. That's really good, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. Okay. Shall we move on to our next section? Yes. Best moment. I think my favorite was Ale exploding the drinking horn. That's just such a classic. I love that. For me, it's tied between that moment and when Aik is standing there. He and his friends have just escaped, you know, being trapped and enslaved by these crazy lunatics. And he's like, you know what? This isn't very sportsmanlike. Let's burn their hall down. That is also very good. I it's a I toss really up. have have questions about how he presented that. Like, a he's doing something that is in fact dishonorable. You're not supposed to do hall burnings. They are wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, there are very few situations in which that is the honorable thing to do. Mm -hmm. But also, like, I really think he could have gotten more of them on board if he just said like. These guys suck. Let's just burn down their house before we go. Right. Instead of going like, we should face them like men. People are going to get it. No. They're like, ah, we're Vikings, dude. We're pirates. This isn't really our yeah. MO. Put your, put your toxic masculinity back in your pants. Yeah, come on. They're both good. The court. This was my text, so you get to pick first. I'm still not a huge fan of Ale. I'm not sure I want him hanging around. <laughs> so... I think I will choose to keep Gunhild company by taking her husband. Eric. Okay, King Eric. Man, I don't have much of a pick this round, do I? Ah, oh, Do I dare pick Eric? I won't stop you. That seems like a bad idea. He's got to go on a quest with people. <laughs> I don't think he and Kukulin would manage. <laughs> oh, God, I... Those two would either be best friends or just immediately decide to kill each other on sight. On sight. All right, hang on. Let me go through the saga again because I can't remember who other, like, oh, 
Athelstan. I pick oh. Athelstan. I forgot he was in this one. That is a good <laughs> choice. Okay, we both get kings this time. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Final rating. Again, you go first. Hmm. We did just stop right before a really engaging part, but again, with the whole drinking horn incident and the hall burning and the slaying at the pagan fest. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is like just general mayhem, mm-hmm. but like it's, it's, it's good mayhem. I love the exploding horn. I like that Gunhild's trying to get people killed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it an 8.5. All right, 8.5. I think I'll match you there. That works for me. Because this one was pretty quick to go through, pretty quick to read through. Things made sense. There wasn't a lot of parts that I had to skip. I think Mm -hmm. I only skipped one or two sections because it was basically them doing more Viking stuff. And I was like, eh, eh, not really super engaging. So 8.5. All right. I am not surprised to hear that there are a couple chapters that could just be like freebooting with a couple (laughs) exclamation points. Yeah, it's essentially okay. Okay, very short. One sentence, although it does have some semicolons. This is Book 3, Chapter 65. Work a salve against nocturnal goblin visitors. (laughs) I'm sorry. Nocturnal goblin visitors? Why would you want to get rid of them? (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't, but you do you. I mean, I guess it depends on what I have to do in the morning. That's fair. If they're nasty goblin visitors, then this might come in handy. Exactly. But uh, as I think has come up before, because I feel like I've said this previously, nocturnal goblin visitors is just how Kakane translates Nikgingan, which means Nightwalker. Yes, the night visitors. I think he's using goblin as like a catch-all term for like supernatural beings. Mm-hmm. Anyway... This is how to protect yourself from nocturnal goblins. Boil in butter lupins, hedgerife, bishopwort, red mace, crop leek, salt. Smear the man therewith. It will soon be well with him. Now that's all it says, but I have questions. I feel like that would keep everyone away. I've got to assume that's the point, is they're going to look at him and go like, what's that guy covered with? That, that looks kind of gross. Either that or, like, he's too slippery to grab a hold of. <laughs> <laughs> that might be it. Like I, You can't, I, you can't grab the child and drag the child away. And, go like, Ew, and turn around to go bother someone else. Right? I, like the, I like the image of him just slipping out of their little goblin hands. It's like, it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's interesting that a remedy for goblins coming into your house is topical and not like something you put in the window or something. Yeah. I feel like, you. I mean, you'd get it everywhere anyway, so your entire house is going to smell like like a weird cough syrupy mixture. Yeah, I have no idea what it would... Well, I assume after a while it would smell like rancid butter, but I don't know what it would smell like at first when it's fresh. Yeah, I don't... Hmm. Now, of course, the explanation, I think, is that the Old English would blame mysterious ailments on elves and goblins and whatnot. And so, like, when it's saying, like, against nocturnal goblin visitors, it's saying this will prevent the diseases that we believe are caused by goblins. 
but the way it's phrased really sounds like it's it's like this is how you escape the goblins. You cover yourself in butter. I feel like it's a good solution to all of the like gothic horror, like the American gothic horror of like night walkers or like what's in the cornfields. <laughs> like, like you're good, just slather yourself in this butter oil like herb mixture and you'll be fine. I absolutely want a like like a, a like a southern gothic novel that's maybe one with multiple perspectives where like some of them are taking the whole thing like dead serious <laughs> but at least one of them is like I will cover myself in butter so the goblins get The up. goblins won't get me. <laughs> or like English countryside horror where you get like Van Helsing or whatever coming in mm. and everyone's like we're all terrified in the village. And then you get this, like, one crazy old man who's like, nah, I know the old rituals. Yes, yes it should absolutely be presented in the straight-laced, like, genre trope way. We're like, yes. e- either, like, some elderly wise man, wise woman, or, like, an old book you find reveals the ritual. But the ritual is just cover yourself in butter. In butter. It's gonna do it ten out of ten. Every time. And if it's a movie, that should be accompanied with, like, the same dramatic music you'd get if it were, like, a respectable ritual. Except you need the, you need the sounds. I want the, I want the butter slathering. Yes, absolutely. The squelching. <laughs> when the butter is applied, there should be, the background music should be very quiet so we can hear the butter. <laughs> it's so cursed. It's so cursed. No. <laughs> I'm here for it. Yes. And also, there has to be a slapstick moment where the person covered in butter just, like, slips and falls over at a really inopportune time. But, like, it's not, like, a plot device. Like, they just get up and keep going. Yes. It it happens. Yes. Horrifying. I love it. Well, I don't know what else to end on. That's all you need. That is how you take fiction inspiration from old English texts. Absolutely. So, before you go to bed tonight, you know, it's not don't let the bed bugs bite. It's... Cover yourself in butter to save yourself from the goblins. I'll figure out how to make that rhyme later. That may keep you from going to sleep if you have a pet, because they will spend <laughs> the entire night licking it off of you. Oh, no. All right. I think that covers it. I just can't believe that we went through a whole thing about buttering people and we didn't mention chores. Now I think that's it. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Also, for the listeners, if you notice my voice suddenly got louder, it's because I realized I had my microphone (laughs) out of place and just fixed that. (laughs) He was recording from across the room, projecting. (laughs)